Dave Brubeck is in rehearsal with two students from the Brubeck Institute, a California program for budding jazz players. They're running through Brubeck's tune in your own sweet way. And suddenly, something happens. And they're in waltz time. Where did that waltz come from? Oh, it's from from out of nowhere. I didn't know they were going to do that, but it worked nice. Because you had the waltz going on in 3-4 against 4-4, so it's a nice change. I hope we can remember it. It's comforting to know that 45 years after his signature album, Time Out, Brubeck is still delighted by unpredictable meter in music. Dave Brubeck was born in 1920 in the small town of Concord, California, north of San Francisco. He was the youngest of three sons, all of them musical. The family moved to a ranch when Dave was 11, and his father, the cattleman, wanted him to be a cowboy, then a veterinarian. But Dave's passion for music prevailed, and he switched from pre-med to music in the early 1940s and embarked on a career as a jazz pianist and composer. Brubeck's insistence on being himself He avoided all of the jazz fashions of the 1950s and 60s, resulting in some of the most accessible and successful jazz records ever. His latest recordings illustrate his versatility. His classical piece, Gates of Justice, a civil rights work written in the late 60s, has just been released, and Private Brubeck Remembers is a solo jazz piano recording of World War II songs. This is Sarah Fishko. I hope you'll stay with me for an hour with Dave Brubeck. You talked about one period in the 40s where you didn't want to listen to any jazz or anything. You just didn't want to listen. Yeah. I did quit listening for a period there because I could have gone in the direction of some of my favorite pianists like Art Tatum and Teddy Wilson. There is a recording I made when I was 21 that they just found in the archives at University of Pacific. And you can hear a lot of Tatum in me and Fats Waller. something, you've got to quit listening to your favorite people and start being yourself. They're still here. They're in the room over there. I still don't get them out that often, but once in a while I'll get out a lot of Teddy Wilson, maybe. When did you listen to that when you were growing up? Yeah, 
In the formative years, if you're lucky, it's when you're in high school, and if you're really lucky, you're in a high school where there's other jazz musicians. Well, I grew up where there were 86 kids in high school. That's in all four grades, and none of them were jazz musicians. Before I moved to the ranch, I was in a community where there were other kids that liked jazz. On the ranch, I was alone. In those periods, you grow on your own or you get records and try to copy. Billy Kyle, do you remember him? He played with the Billy Kyle trio in the 30s, and then he ended up with Louis Armstrong for years. In fact, Billy Kyle might have been the first great jazz pianist I heard. And what about Tatum? Tatum, oh boy. Tatum's very important in my life because my mother was a concert pianist that didn't quite make it. She studied with Dame Myra Hess in England, and Myra Hess saw my mother looking out the window when she was giving her a lesson because there were some young boys playing outside. And she said, why are you concentrating on that? And she said, well, I have two boys at home, and I'm thinking about them now. I'm so lonely for them. And she said to my mother, go home to your children. Just consider how fortunate you are. A concert pianist's life is very lonely. So that was the end of the concert idea for my mother. And you said Art Tatum. Oh, she didn't want me to be a jazz musician. And my mother was disappointed because all I wanted to do was improvise or play jazz. So one day we were in the car. This would have been around 1938. My car had a radio and... Art Tatum was on, and he was playing humoresque. And because my mother knew and played humoresque, when it was finished, she said, Now, David, I understand why you want to be a jazz pianist. Up until then, she disliked jazz. When she heard Tatum doing a piece she knew, she knew what I was up to.
studied with your mother, right, initially? I didn't study, but through osmosis, I heard all the great piano literature. I couldn't study classical piano. Just, it didn't take. What did you study? Did you study jazz piano? Did you just improvise? Did you find some other way to approach the instrument? I was an escape artist and kept away from everything that she would try to teach me except harmony. She didn't know what to do with me. And you never learned to read music, at least not in the early days? No. I had a block against reading music that may have come from having bad eyesight from the time I was born. Things didn't line up too good, so I never really learned to read well. But I could write, and that's strange, but I may have a learning disability. Dave did learn a lot from Cleo Brown, a singer-pianist who gave him one of his first jobs while he was still in college. Whether it's Virginia, Tennessee, or sunny Caroline, any place is heaven down below that old Mason Dixie line, you take the E. When Fats Waller died, the men in that band wanted Cleo to come in and take Fats's place. That's how great she was. She needed somebody to play intermissions for her, and she was happy with me. Brubeck still says it was Brown who taught him the importance of the left hand in fulfilling the role of the string bass. She gave me a note to take to Art Tatum and introduce myself. You see, I'm going from one of the greatest women pianists to the greatest man pianist. Did you take the note to Art Tatum? Yeah. What happened? He read it, and uh, there were only two of us in the club, the bartender and myself and Art Tatum. When he read the note, he asked me how Cleo was playing. I said, she got the fastest left hand I've ever heard. If you knew Art Tatum, he wasn't going to take that statement without <laughs> some resistance. And he said, come with me, boy. And he sat me where he knew I could see his left hand. And he raised his right hand, high as it could go. And then he just played with his left hand to show me who had the fastest left hand. <laughs> Later, long after all this, in the 50s, Brubeck wrote a tribute to the woman who'd helped him get his start, Sweet Cleo Brown. His piece was an affectionate look back at all the practitioners of that early jazz piano style he'd loved as a boy.
Sweet Cleo Brown, recorded by Brubeck in 1957, in tribute to a woman who recognized his gifts early. Usually the talented people, Duke Ellington, when he first heard me in San Francisco, he said, oh, you've got to go to New York. People have got to hear you. Stan Kenton believed I had a lot to say. Whereas I might take a job with some Mickey Mouse band and then get fired the first night. Didn't make much sense. If I went to an average teacher, in, say, in a conservatory like I was, I usually got flunked. But if I got a certain teacher that uh, was more interested in composition and counterpoint, I'd get A's. They almost threw you out of college, right? For when they Well, just... the dean wouldn't allow me to, to graduate. And this good teacher that taught harmony went to the dean and said, uh, you're making a big mistake. This kid's more talented than anybody I've ever had in class. So the dean said, because other teachers have come in and defended you, uh, I'm going to let you graduate if you promise never to teach. And uh, I've kind of kept a promise. <laughs> would, would that be a sworn statement he was asking for about not teaching? Well, it, he was right. He said, you know, you're an embarrassment to the conservatory. Well, you couldn't teach reading, but you, there are other things to teach about music that... Yeah, that is a, as far as they were concerned, I was an outsider. Soon after college, in the summer of 42, Brubeck joined the Army. He was away from the scene for nearly four years. When I got back, everybody was playing bebop. And I just knew, well, I, I'll do my own thing. I'm not going to be a bebop player, and I'm not going to sit around like everybody else listening to Parker and uh, Dizzy. There's plenty to do on my own. You're listening to An Hour with Dave Brubeck. Coming up, Dave learns a lot about jazz from a great classical composer and takes the jazz world by storm. I'm Sarah Fishko. Back in a minute. Back to An Hour with Dave Brubeck. 
I'm Sarah Fishko. Brubeck was discharged from the Army in 1946 after nearly four years. So you went to the Army, and you came back and went into uh, Darius Mio's class. Right. And that was amazing. Yeah, because he believed in me. Here you got, again, one of the top classical composers in the world. French composer Darius Mio was teaching composition at Mills College, a women's school at the time. But in those days, the women's colleges started to open their doors to men returning from World War II. Brubeck and a group of his musician friends got a tuition-free deal on the GI Bill. On the first day, Mio asked, how many jazz musicians in the class? And we raised our hands, and he said, wonderful. You must write your fugues and counterpoint and your compositions, if you want, for the jazz instruments. Brubeck's teacher had been thinking along these lines since the 1920s. Neil was a genius beyond genius. He was probably the first classical composer to use jazz in a piece called Creation of the World. Before anyone else, before Gershwin and other people. And right out of that class grew the Dave Brubeck Octet. The Octet, featuring Cal Jader, Paul Desmond, Bill Smith, and others, was a new sound for Brubeck and a new sound for jazz. Brubeck's teacher, Mio, had been a champion of polytonality, the use of two or three different keys at once in a piece. He had also reintroduced Brubeck to counterpoint, which had been largely absent from jazz, having given way to the dance band sound. Brubeck brought some of the Mio style to his work and pulled polytonality and counterpoint into jazz. Thank you. 
the Dave Brubeck Octet, recorded in the late 40s when many of its members were under the influence of the French composer Darius Mio. What's so interesting is how he heard jazz and put the jazz into his music, and then you heard the jazz in his music and then sort of brought it back into jazz with his influence. It's such an interesting... Circle, yeah. And it was just glorious being around him and being invited to his house whenever there was an open house every Thursday night and he'd want us to come and jam and it was just a world of music. You had already met Desmond by the time you were in Mio's class? You had met him before that? Or did you meet him around that time? I met him on my way overseas as a rifleman. I wanted to get in the band. So they had a jam session, and Paul was the alto player. We hardly spoke. We just played. I didn't get into the band and went on to Europe. But after the war, I got together with Paul because he'd come in and jam where I was working in uh, San Francisco. He'd come in every night and sit there and sit there till we'd let him play. And he did that for a couple of years. Then he went on the road and he heard my trio recordings with Cal Jader and Ron Crody. turned right around and came back to San Francisco and would not take no for an answer. He kept sitting in with me, with the trio, and I got in an accident and the trio had to be disbanded. And I wrote to Paul saying, well, maybe we can form a quartet like you're talking about. Wasn't there this instant magic with you and Paul? Oh, yeah. It, it really was my wife that said, you got to let Paul play with you. When you two guys play together, something, well, you use the word magic. My wife is a good influence on me, and she kept pushing the idea that when you form the new group, should be a quartet with Paul.
gone through a period where I knew what I was writing was not reaching the audience. So I started playing all standards. We just started improvising on tunes that were usually acceptable. standards and the quartet was built on the trio book said, uh, we've got to hire somebody to write some music for us. And I said, Desmond, you got to be kidding. I can write two tunes in a half hour. And I did. One of them was In Your Own Sweet Way, which has been recorded by Miles and Bill Evans and Stan Getz, 60 or 70 different jazz artists. And every week somebody else will record it. Within a month of the appearance of this Miles Davis version of In Your Own Sweet Way in 1956, Brubeck recorded his own version, himself, at home.
wrote that in a few minutes, did you? Yeah, and the other one nobody's ever recorded to me. It's called The Walls. I've got 400 tunes registered, and the musicians kind of feel like I've written about 10 tunes, you know? Remember Miles did The Duke? Well, The Duke is something people do talk about as a kind of a major. Yeah. Because you went through every key and every, I mean, it was a <laughs> wild ride. Yeah, all 12 keys in the first eight bars. Later on, people like Coltrane and Giant Steps, but most of the time, tunes weren't moving that fast harmonically. Desmond, who I gather kind of drifted in and out of your life, your musical life. Well, once he came in, he was a permanent fixture. In fact, his first concert was with me, and his last concert at Lincoln Center was with me. There was a period from about 1953 up to 67. He was constantly in the group. And then when I broke up the group, he would uh, come along. Again, like when he was a kid, his health would improve if he'd go on the road with me. One time his doctor called and he said, please let Paul go on the road with you because when he comes home, he's in such better shape. (laughs) For some reason, he liked to play with me. He didn't care whether he was hired or not. And then he'd hang out with my sons, and I'd be the old man that would be in my room alone, and they'd be laughing it up all night, having a great time. They were all very close, my sons and Paul. You had this extraordinary period in the early 50s of just catching on and the Time magazine cover and the... That was 54. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and we just played the uh, 50th anniversary of Jazz at Oberlin. We were just there. And that was a breakthrough album. And it kind of changed the way uh, jazz musicians worked in universities and colleges as concerts rather than sorority or fraternity dances or things like that. Mm-hmm. 
In fact, jazz at Oberlin repositioned jazz entirely, from music that was played in dark clubs and dance halls to an art form embraced by college students across the country. Jazz Goes to College appeared sometime later, produced by George Avakian. George came to San Francisco and uh, asked me to join Columbia. And that was a good period. Yeah. Yeah. So how did the Time magazine cover uh, affect you? What, what was the impact of that? I, I know it was, the, it was the first time a jazz musician had been honored that way, right? Uh, Louis Armstrong was before me, but um, it was very early for that kind of thing. Did it change your life? Was it? <laughs> well, I guess you're better known to be on. In those days, the cover of Time magazine was about the greatest publicity that you could get. So if nothing else, you sold a lot of records, I guess. We were doing okay, and, but it this didn't do any harm. <laughs> Brubeck produced 13 albums in his first five years with Columbia, leading up to 1959. Which brings us to the thing that everybody knows about Dave Brubeck, the enormous success he had with Time Out, the album containing the jazz hit of all time, Take Five. Are you tired of talking about Time Out? No. It's still going strong. Always Take Five is big worldwide. And they've just re-released all the time. Time Out, Time Further Out, Time in Outer Space. Five of them in a box together. I remember reading that there was a one point at which they didn't even want to release Time Out because they thought nobody could dance to it because it was in this odd time signature. Yeah, Columbia didn't jump at the chance. I knew that it was going to cause trouble, so I didn't tell Columbia what I was doing till we showed up at the record session. They were against it because people, like you say, couldn't dance to it, and it was all originals on one album shouldn't do that. You should mix in show tunes and standard tunes. You shouldn't have a painting on the cover. What else you shouldn't do? There you go, breaking those rules again. Yeah. (laughs) The president of Columbia loved it. Goddard Lieberson and fought for it and lost. He took it to the West Coast and played it for all the West Coast people and they hated it. Said this will never sell. jockeys somehow started pushing it in Chicago, I think, and Detroit or Cleveland. It just became so popular. Both of those tunes, Blue Rondo and Take Five, were being played constantly on the air. So Columbia finally made a single, but it wasn't because they thought of doing it. 
They just had to. So that, that was, it was an improvisation, or did you write the tune, or did Desmond write the tune? I, uh... The tune came out of a quartet rehearsal. Everybody contributed to it. And Paul had some melodies, and I put the melodies together and made the tune, called it Take Five. Paul hated the title. Said he, nobody knows what that means. I said, everybody but you, Paul Desmond, knows what that means. (laughs) It just caught on. It sure did. shows you that you don't have to be conventional because we approached it as an experimental album and it grew beyond that. We didn't know we had a hit. We were in Europe and we were informed we had a hit going on here at home. And so that must have changed your life dramatically. I don't remember changing it that much because we had good success before that. You know, you're not on the cover of Time unless you're successful. And that's six years before that. Things were finally coming together for us. You're listening to An Hour with Dave Brubeck. I'm Sarah Fishko. Coming up, Brubeck on jazz, politics, and life in general. Back in a minute. Back to An Hour with Dave Brubeck. I'm Sarah Fishko. I wanted to talk about the Carnegie Hall concert in 63. 
which everybody talks about as a big high point. Do you have memories of it? I remember that it's a raggy walls was for me the highlight of the concert. I haven't played it for years, but I think of that night as where we were really playing some complicated things together that turned out good and happened to be recorded. There's so many things that turn out great you'll never hear again. sections, but this one was very unique. And the one I had with Alan Dawson and Jack Six and Jerry Mulligan, there's a whole period where jazz was getting so little recognition, and that group was so strong that followed the breakup of the old quartet. How can you get much stronger than Mulligan? Alan Dawson is a great drummer, and Jack Six on bass. This was, uh, what, the early 70s? Yeah. Yeah. There's recordings, like live at uh, Berlin Philharmonic. It was a three-day festival, and we were to close at midnight, I think it was, or close to that, of the third day. And they had told us not to take an encore. And they came back and they said, the audience will not go home and they're going to tear this place up unless you go back. played with that group rock concerts where we were the only ones that got an encore and we didn't get a mention and 
no push from any record company because they were all pushing rock and roll. In fact, Columbia let me go shortly after that. mystery to me how the record companies in the press decided they wanted something different. They managed to take the forward motion out of jazz. So in a way they, they almost destroyed jazz. A few of us fought through the 70s, kept things going, like the modern jazz quartet. Miles when he felt like playing. But all, all of a sudden, the, the whole country seemed to forget the importance of jazz. Are there recordings you've made that you feel have been unappreciated? Are there certain favorites of yours that you wish had the same stature as some of the ones that have become very famous? Oh, yeah. Like what? For instance, The Real Ambassadors with Louis Armstrong. I thought that would be a hit. I thought it was so important, a statement that Louis is making. Yeah, I remember when Diz was in Greece back in 57. He did such a good job, we started sending jazz all over the world. With Carmen McRae, Lambert Hendricks and Ross, my trio, and Louis' band. The state... Department has discovered jazz. That never did what I thought it would it reaches do. folks like nothing ever has. We just repeated it 40 years after That's its premiere at Monterey Jazz Festival. That album is full of things that should have reached the public and changed the public thinking, with Louis trying to lead us into a better country. Now, for instance, this recording of The Gates of Justice, that was written in 68. The black and the Jewish communities were drawing apart where they had been together. And they asked me, they commissioned me to write something that would bring the two cultures together. We use Martin Luther King as a contemporary prophet and Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet. The Gates of Justice score calls for combined forces, soloists, chorus, brass, percussion, and jazz trio. (laughs) 
is everything written for the trio, or is there improvisation in that as well? All improvisation. All my stuff is improvisation when the jazz group comes in. So you just leave room for... You leave room, and sometimes you're over the top of the symphony orchestra playing. We were so lucky that most of the things made me happy, and we didn't retake anything. You just did it straight through? It becomes more like a concert if you keep going and you don't stop. I hate these record sessions. Oh, where they're stopping you every, well, it seems like every minute. We didn't have that happen once in these sessions. That's great. The Gates of Justice was composed and first performed after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, using his words as text. Now, when Martin Luther King said, we must live together as brothers or die together as fools. I think people heard it, but it went right through one ear and out the other. When they heard this in San Francisco, they knew what King was talking about. We better wake up. We better live together as brothers or die together as fools. It's no longer a time to just let things like this slip by. You listen to King. Listen to what he had to say. You also went through a period where you had a a mixed quartet and you were playing, I guess, in segregated clubs in the South, right? Oh, yeah. That was in, in the 50s. In the 50s. But we eventually played all those clubs and all those universities. But we had a hard time playing in certain areas. But we, uh, we managed on our terms. We stayed an integrated group when they wanted us to be all white. We kept Eugene and fought the good battle. Must have been a strange atmosphere. It also must have been strange to go to the Soviet Union in the middle of the McCarthy period <laughs> to do the cultural exchange tours that you did. Yeah. This was President Eisenhower sent us along the periphery of Russia. Then we played Iran and Iraq, East and West Pakistan and India. We were out there doing what we should have been doing is spreading the idea of freedom through jazz. They were so into what we were doing, and it was so underground. I have been to so many places where it was almost life or death, whether you liked freedom or jazz or spoke about it. But 
we don't appreciate our freedom here. I'll tell you something that you may be able to explain to me. But my wife and I grew up in what was a depression. People had very little to exist on. In the school where my wife went, every kid had an instrument. Now, there might have not been as much food on the table at home. Where did these farm kids get parents that were going to buy instruments when they, they could hardly buy food? Every kid in school. Now we're the wealthiest nation in the world, and we're dropping music and arts and everything. This you explained to me when the last thing in a depression would have been to drop music. Figure that one out. I can't explain it to you. I don't have the explanation. I wish I did. Okay. Okay. I preached enough. Do you have any theories about why you became so fascinated with time signatures and with playing with that kind of thing? Oh, just me being me and wanting to do my own thing. And that's I've gone through life in a nutty way because I'm not a conventional person that learns like other people. Even my brother and people that... Paul Desmond, people that know me really well can't figure me out. But I am very stubborn and I work very hard. I've had to work harder than most people to produce, but I have produced a lot. Which brings us to the end of this Hour with Dave Brubeck, produced at WNYC in New York. Technical director for the program was Edward Haber, with additional engineering by Wayne Schulmeister. Bass and drums at the top of the show were played by Joe Sanders and Justin Brown. Special thanks to Michael Elsesser and also to George Moore and Russell Gloyd. I was producer and host. I'm Sarah Fishko. Dave Brubeck, it's been a real pleasure. Sarah, thank you. And I'm sorry it's raining and you drove all the way to my house. But thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be in your house in the rain. (laughs) 